Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.5, The Legacy of Salem. Last time, we spent our episode looking at the Salem Witchcraft Trials of 1692, trials that saw hundreds accused and 20 executed for witchcraft. This entire system of trials was predicated upon extremely flimsy evidence, such as the use of spectral and touch evidence. Last time, we had focused on the history of the events, the nuts and bolts of what had actually gone down in Salem. This week, however, I want to step back and try to piece together just why Salem totally lost its mind in 1692. We are going to look at the long-term legacy and the effects of the Salem trials and try to figure out what the entire experience had actually meant, if anything at all. When examining the trials in Salem, the biggest question that comes out is how did this happen? How was it possible in the first place? Now, I would encourage that we look at this question in two separate ways. The first question that we need to answer is, what were the events that created a situation conducive to the accusations being made in the first place? The second question then is, how did the structures in place in Salem, as well as in Massachusetts in general, help support the allegations and indeed help keep the entire event going along? As we are going to see, at some point, the allegations begin feeding more and more allegations as the entire cycle became self-sustaining. As to that first question, I want to take a moment to look at the conditions in Salem in early 1692, as that is going to help explain what the environment was and how it was conducive for the witchcraft trials in the first place. Massachusetts was a mess in early 1692. Now, the good news for us is that I really don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this point, because the last 20 or so episodes of this podcast have had an underlying theme that Massachusetts was going through some stuff over the last decade and a half. Beginning with King Philip's War in 1675, then moving forward to the loss of their colonial charter and the introduction of the Dominion government in 1686, then on into the Edmund Andros era, and now we are stuck in that period of semi-purgatory well, we wait to see what William III is going to do with the new colonial charters. The entirety of Massachusetts, therefore, was on edge and had now been on edge for several years. It had been a rough decade for the Massachusetts colony, and at the moment, a return to a truly stable system was still off in their future. What had more of a profound impact on Salem, however, was their location in Massachusetts. The settlement is located in the northeastern portion of the colony. Salem Village, now modern-day Danvers, sits about 25 miles from the border with New Hampshire. This northerly position is important because it placed Salem closer to the front lines of the unfolding crisis in Maine than, say, further down south in Boston. This is to say nothing about the more rural nature of the region, which further increased the risk of Indian attacks, as opposed to regions further to the south. One of the more devastating effects of the Boston Rebellion of April of 1689 is that it left the northern border of the colony largely unprotected. This is a topic that we have talked about before. Recall that between 1689 and 92, there had been numerous attempts to get control of the northern frontier. This includes an attempt by William Phipps himself prior to him heading off to London. During the early phases of the war, those phases that Andrus himself was in charge of, there were constant allegations being made against Andros in particular 
suggesting that he was working with both the Indians, the French, or some combination thereof. Following his discharge from the Dominion, the situation up in Ming quickly became far more dangerous. As I just said a moment ago, this is not to say that attempts were not made by the colonists to get control of that situation. However, the disbanding of the Dominion government largely left the Ming frontier completely unprotected. The Indians, specifically the Wabanakis, largely do continue to take advantage of those tactics that we see used during King Philip's War, namely the use of quick hit-and-run style surprise attacks. The Wabanakis likely were interested in avoiding a larger-scale pitched battle against the English, where they would quickly be overwhelmed. Of course, an argument can be made that the very poorly garrisoned English also had zero interest in an actual pitched battle. For the provisional government down in Boston, the situation was dangerous. The colony was not in a great place to defend the northern frontier, and serious discussions were held about leaving New Hampshire to figure it out for themselves. Maine, on the other hand, provided a different set of problems. Maine was valuable land for the English. It was certainly not something that they could afford to lose after years of economic hardships. Dispatching Benjamin Church in 1689, and if you'll remember we had met him back during our episodes on King Philip's War, the English were able to make some inroads at slowing down the Wabanakis. However, there was little interest amongst either Church or his men about staying long-term in Maine. So, while the frontier did temporarily settle down, it was still far from actually being back into full control of the English. The victory for Church would prove to be short-lived. Well, it did get the English through the winter, when fighting started back up in the spring of 1690, the same problems with the frontier were once again front and center. During the early campaign season of 1690, the devastating blow came at Salmon Falls, when a group of Indians and French struck, killing as many as 100 English. Despite the English getting troops together relatively quickly, a second blow was delivered on May 20th, 1690, when the Indians attacked and captured Falmouth, Maine, in an attack that left another 200 dead. Falmouth was located on the western half of Casco Bay, and was an absolutely huge loss for the English. The English counter-strike came in two phases, one on Port Royal, followed by moving on to Quebec, with the mission being led by the future royal governor William Phipps. We know from our previous episodes that while the assault on Port Royal was successful, Phipps did fail to take Quebec. Despite larger engagements by the Wabanakis at Falmouth and Salmon Falls, the loss of Port Royal would force the Wabanakis back into that familiar place of hit-and-run style tactics. This in turn pushed the entire episode towards becoming a war of attrition. What would follow over the coming year and a half was a situation that was largely unsettled and chaotic. The English lacked the ability to really put the fatal blowdown on the Wabanakis and in the war. Likewise, the Wabanakis had become a dangerous nuisance as they continued to harass the English. Virtually all of 1691 was spent with the English remaining in the defensive position, trying to hold down the situation from getting any further out of control. The practical effect of this in terms of morale was that the war was absolutely devastating. For settlers, it meant an entire year spent on guard, never knowing when the Indian attack that was going to kill them all was going to hit. The situation would hold on until late January of 1692, when the Wabanakis led a surprise attack on York, Maine, in what would become known as the Candlemas Massacre. 
the surprise attack killed around 50 English settlers and saw approximately twice that number captured. The attack completely destroyed the town. It is interesting to note that this massacre came at a time where tensions throughout Massachusetts were undoubtedly high. We have already mentioned the fact that the Bay Colony at this point knew that it was operating on borrowed time. By the time 1692 rolled around, they knew that at some point William III was going to issue a new charter. The economy was in shambles from years of warfare as well as the period of Dominion rule. The Puritan church itself had been challenged by the Anglicans coming into the colony during Andros. And going back to the fact that a new charter was coming, there was a realization that the church was likely going to lose the supremacy and central position that it had held and enjoyed since the colony's founding. The very way of life for the Puritans was in serious question by the time the attack on York came. With everything that Massachusetts had been going through for the last several years, 1692 was unquestionably a stressful time in the colony. Now, in late January, there is this attack on York. Suddenly, the Indian threat is rapidly rising again in the colony, as fears that the conflict is going to expand quickly filtered down. None of this is mentioning the fact that York is only around 30 miles north of Massachusetts. The attack, therefore, is not in the far north, but is really right in the backyard of northern Massachusetts. It was just a few weeks later that the first allegations of witchcraft in Salem were made. This is the situation under which those allegations were able to be made and were able to flourish. We know from the records of the investigation as well that the Indian affairs were high on the list. Recall the testimony of Abigail Hobbs, who mentioned that she had seen the great black man, referring to the devil, and was transported to Casco Bay. Casco Bay is located in Maine and had been one of the hotspots for the fighting. The very fact that Casco Bay is even mentioned clues us into the fact that one of the stressors of this event was the ongoing frontier war. I want to go back for a moment and look more closely at how those two things became so intrinsically linked. Abigail Hobbs, who had been one of the earliest confessors to practicing witchcraft, was indeed somebody who had been suspected of witchcraft prior to the allegations of 1692. In fact, Hobbs made the statement during her interrogation that she had visited with the devil previously, three or four years prior, in Casco Bay. Some quick math tells us that she is claiming to have had a personal visit with the devil in Maine sometime between 1688 and 1689. That would correlate to right around the same time that tensions had flared up in the first place. Recall, this is when Edmund Andros had spent that fall and winter up in the north trying to get control over the situation. For a highly religious society, therefore, it was an easy connection for them to make. Based on the statements of Abigail Hobbs, they knew that the devil had infiltrated both Salem and the church. The aggressions by the Wabanakis, therefore, was more than just a frontier war between the Indians and the colonists, but it now also became a fight between good and evil itself. This statement by Hobbes likewise gives an impression over the entire colony that they were being actively attacked by Satan. And to be clear, this is not simply a battle anymore for their souls or for salvation from eternal damnation. This is now something very real and very tangible. This is an actual battle. The devil was now attacking them externally through the Wabanakis, 
up on the main frontier and was attacking them internally through witchcraft. It is also important to keep in mind the religious situation in the colony at the time. This is something that we have discussed before. However, it is critical when attempting to understand how 1692 played out. The colonists in New England believed that they had a special covenant with God. Being the city on the hill had always been more than lip service. It was something that they deeply felt and profoundly believed in. Whenever bad things took place in the colony, therefore, the colonists looked directly at it as being a response from God in regards to their behavior. The devastation of King Philip's War and the subsequent economic downturn were therefore viewed not as being just simply political and economic events, but rather they were religious events. God was mad at the colonists, and those events and misfortunes were God's wrath. Well, the stresses of the past decade and a half certainly explain the underlying situation that could allow the allegations to be made. It is important that we not get completely lost on the greater issues at hand and look more specifically at things going on in Salem proper that laid the foundation for the events that took place throughout 1692. We know that the witchcraft trials were limited to Salem for the most part. However, it was the whole of New England that was living through these events. So the question therefore shifts to why Salem specifically became ground zero for the allegations of witchcraft. Salem Village had long been a place of religious tensions and infighting between the colonists. Throughout the 1680s, there had been a dispute over the salary of the town's minister. This had led to the resignation of George Burroughs in 1683. His replacement, Samuel Paris, had the exact same problem and proposed a tax to help pay for his salary. As you may guess, this tax was not exactly popular and caused an increase in fighting between the colonists as factions formed. It is worth noting that among the supporters of Paris's proposed tax was the Putnam family. On the other side of the debate were the Proctors and several others who would ultimately find themselves being accused as part of the coming hysteria. For his role, Samuel Paris, in the years following the events of 1692, would continue to equate those who were directly opposed to him to Satan. By 1695, Paris would become such a divisive figure in Salem that he would end up needing to resign and leave the town for good. This position by Paris himself reinforces the fact that there were secular rivalries in place that helped form a base for the allegations to be possible. Evidence further suggests that there had been a long land battle between the Putnams and other residents of Salem. Chief amongst these battles was one between the Putnams and the Proctors. The Putnams had interest in acquiring the Proctors' farm, something that the Proctors were far less interested in. Moreover, numerous other residents in Salem had a tense relationship specifically with the Putnams, several of which had been involved in litigation against them. Many of these same people would see themselves accused throughout the spring of 1692. This does help explain some of the complaints against those who personally held grudges against others in the colony. However, what explains the rest? Not all of the allegations can be explained because people had beef with the Putnams. In addition to everything else, we need to look at simple human nature here. As the panic grew throughout 1692, there were always bound to be copycats. Once the entire episode got moving, it began to fuel itself. As the allegations were made, more and more residents of Salem began acting out. 
This leads to a sense of mass hysteria, which allowed for the allegations to flow both faster and easier. Others have pointed out the fact that the majority of the accusers were young and had grown up in a largely repressive society. Their allegations were therefore a manifestation of their anger over this and represented a rebellion against their repressive upbringings. While I am not going to make much of an argument here that Salem was anything more than a pretty repressive place, I do think this explanation falls short of the mark. If you have been listening to this podcast, then you are well aware that all of New England was a pretty repressive place. Nobody is going to turn towards the Puritans and comment on what a fun bunch they were. If being raised in a repressive society was all it took to cause these allegations to begin flying around, one would have expected to see more claims of witchcraft throughout the colonies. And while such allegations did occur, they were always the exception far more than the norm. Though the allegations would expand some beyond Salem, they did remain mostly limited to that one village. It isn't as though an entire generation of repressed children started claiming bewitchment by their parents. So while the children of Salem surely did grow up in a highly repressive society, this fails to adequately explain what had actually occurred. Further aggravating the problem was the investigation and, indeed, the court itself. During our last episode when we discussed those who had been executed in Salem, there was a constant among the dead that is worth mentioning. Those who were executed all had one major thing in common. None of them confessed to witchcraft. Last week, when we discussed those who had openly confessed, such as Abigail Hobbs, none of them actually ended up being executed. This means that the price of fighting back against the accusations often meant a trip to the gallows, whereas a confession may provide a way out. With those confessing being treated to much more leniency, it became a breeding ground for false confessions. More than that, however, it simply was not enough to confess to being a witch. For somebody confessing, they had to go one step further and name names. That means saying, oh yeah, I practice witchcraft, was not enough. Rather, for it to be a believable confession, one would have to confess not only to their actions, but would need to give details about who brought them into the fold. Sometimes that meant hurling accusations randomly. Other times the accused could simply follow the lead of the investigators and provide them with the names that they were being steered towards. Either way, for those accused, there was significant incentive not only to confess, but to be helpful in the process of identifying other witches in the colony. During the course of the investigation, we see 42 of those accused both confess to their actions as well as point the finger at somebody else. Oftentimes, they would implicate more than one person. Just as problematic was the court itself. Last time, we had discussed the complete lack of any meaningful due process being given to the accused. Among the biggest problems is that the accused were denied any kind of right to counsel. Now, this is not something that is totally unique to Salem at the time. However, it's really not a great start. By far, the most problematic conditions for the colonists was the evidence that was deemed admissible for their trials. This would combine with a preconceived bias from the judges, especially William Strauden. The very fact that spectral evidence was acceptable was deeply concerning in the first place. This is evidence that cannot, in any possible way, be considered reliable. Convictions and indeed death sentences were being propped up by visions from the accusers. I want to stress that this was always something that was a problem. 
it really isn't as though you can look at it and say, well, it was a different time, therefore they just did things differently. The fact that spectral evidence was being used to convict deeply concerned many of those involved. This is evident not just through the writings emerging during the time that expressed such concerns, but also from the dissolution of the court of Oyer and Terminer. When the court was dissolved, we immediately see new rules move away from the admission of spectral evidence. It is not a coincidence that as soon as spectral evidence was no longer admissible, the rate of convictions plummeted. Likewise, consider that concerns over the trials began almost immediately. The first issues were raised following the trial and the subsequent execution of Bridget Bishop, the first person tried and the first person executed. Strada himself would become one of the main figures of not just the trials, but of the corruption that ran rampant within them. Strauden's statements that the specters could not take the shape of innocent people tells the entire story. Strauden, the chief justice of the court of Oyer and Terminer, had clearly made up his mind regarding the guilt and innocence of those accused. If the specters could not take the shape of innocent people, the only other explanation for somebody seeing a specter must be the guilt of the accused. Other judges on the court were less anxious to take the hard-lined approach of Strauden. However, the effect was just the same. In the years following the trials, it is interesting to note that Strauden would never end up backing down from this position, while others, such as Samuel Sewell, would end up admitting the deeply flawed nature of spectral evidence and admit that the events in Salem had not been great. Strauden would never move in that direction and would always remain on board with the idea that nothing at all was wrong with their conduct during the Salem trials. I am generally not a big fan of using the term a perfect storm when referring to history. Essentially, every event arises because a particular set of conditions had to be met to make it happen. In other words, virtually every crisis is the result of a perfect storm of events. However, in regard to the Salem witchcraft trials, it is hard to look at these as being anything but a perfect storm. There were hundreds of points where the events of 1692 could either have been avoided entirely or at a minimum mitigated. You had a colony that was already on edge from years of economic depression, warfare, and interference from England. The New England colonists suddenly found themselves at war against the local native tribes for the second time in less than 20 years. The first war, King Philip's War, had devastated the economy and had set up the conditions whereby Massachusetts would see its charter put into danger. The charter was, of course, eventually revoked, which led to the years of Dominion rule under Edmund Andros. The fall of the Dominion government had left the northern frontier dangerously exposed and had led to a resulting increase in devastating massacres. There was real fear that the conflict was going to continue to grow and expand beyond Maine. This is to say nothing of the fears over continued economic destruction. Beyond the threats of hostility from the natives, the colony was also having to come to grips with an unknown future. The fall of the Dominion of New England was great. However, the collapse did not mean that the old charter was about to make a comeback. When this entire ordeal begins, they are months away from learning about the new charter. This sense of uncertainty was just adding to the stress of an already very stressed out colony. Finally, there is the fact that Massachusetts, beyond everything else going on, is a place where an event like this is even possible to begin with. 
It was a colony so deeply steeped in religion that everything that occurred was viewed in the context of God's approval and, more often, disapproval. King Philip's War, the economic downturn, the revocation of their charter, Edmund Andros and the Dominion of New England, the new war against the Indians in Maine, were all signs that God was displeased with the Puritans. While not terribly common, witchcraft trials continued in New England long after they had fallen out of favor back in Europe itself. This was a colony that fully believed that all the bad things happening to them were a result of them straying too far from their covenant with God. They were therefore able to easily adapt to the ideas that the devil was present in the colony and was adding to their misery. These events set the stage that made the accusations possible. Events within the colony give the spark that the outbreak needed to begin. Rivalries between the leading families of Salem had long pitted the colonists against each other. The accusations may well have been a way in which to strike back and get revenge to deal with those rivalries. On top of all of this, the trials themselves and the investigations were deeply flawed and did nothing but fan the flames and lead to more accusations being made. When you have a system of trials where spectral evidence isn't only admissible, but is at the very core of the convictions, bad things are always going to happen. No favors were likewise done by Chief Justice Strawden when he made his announcement that innocent people could not appear as specters. Combine this with a system that encourages not only admissions of guilt, but the accusations of others, and you are simply pouring gasoline on an already raging inferno. All of this is to say nothing of the fact that really at the core of the incident was petty rivalries which involved many of those who would both do the accusing and were being accused. Ultimately, therefore, we are left with the final question. What is the legacy of Salem? In the short term, it is yet another blow to the faltering covenant system in place in Massachusetts. I saw some sources that placed the decline of the Puritan stronghold in Massachusetts on the events that took place in Salem. While I do think this might be a bit far-reaching, it certainly did not help the situation. Though I think the real death throes of the Puritan power structure was more that new charter that William Phipps returned to the colony with in the spring of 1692. All of the protective measures that were put into place by the Puritans from the beginning were, and had been, in very serious danger from the time that the old charter was revoked and the Dominion government took over. The witchcraft trials did push things into a more secular direction to be sure, but were not alone sufficient to explain the decline of Puritan hegemony in New England. I would more liken the witchcraft hearings to kicking a dying man in the shin rather than any kind of fatal blow to the system. Backlash to the trials was virtually immediate and widespread throughout Massachusetts. We are going to eventually see Ann Putnam Jr. and Samuel Sewell apologize for their roles in the ordeal. Putnam Jr. would recognize that innocent people died because of her statements. Well, she would never go so far as to deny having seen the specters in the first place. She came to admit that she may have been mistaken about what they actually meant. Sewell, for his part, apologized for bringing the anger of God upon Massachusetts for the role he played in the trials. Following Salem, witchcraft trials became a far more rare thing in America, though the practice actually did survive until 1878 when Daniel Spofford was accused of witchcraft. That trial, if you're curious, completely fizzles out and the case is dismissed. 
However, it did take place in Salem, which caused what likely appeared then to be a frivolous case to get a good amount of attention. Either way, however, there would never again be a witch hunt quite in the same fashion as what we see in 1692. And I do say the same fashion, however, because the idea of the witch hunt does remain a very powerful part of the American political experience. The term witch hunt is a very common saying today that often refers to unfair persecutions, often in the political arena. The McCarthy communism trials of the 1950s, for example, are often brought up as a modern witch hunt, and references to Salem were often made during those hearings. Salem is such a strange moment in American history that it really has captured the minds and imaginations of the modern population. Today, if you ask people about their knowledge of American colonial history prior to the revolution, there is a pretty good chance that they are going to bring up the witchcraft trials in Salem. In that regard, in the popular imagination, the events of 1692 Salem remain something that is at the front and center of the history of the colonial United States. Next time, we are going to take a few episodes to tour around the colonies we have not talked about in a while to see what they've been up to. We are going to begin that trip by dropping in on Virginia to see just what's been going on there. Until then, I hope that you all have a fantastic two weeks that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here then when we go and catch up with what's been happening in Virginia. <laughs>